Now, let's turn in our Bibles this morning as we come to God's Word to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21, and we're almost through this, this week, and, uh, and next week should get us to the end of chapter 21 before we move on, which is Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and that is Jesus speaking about what is to come as they uh, gather with him on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. We're drawing to the end of this conversation, this teaching that Jesus is, is bringing. He's basically answering questions that the, the disciples have asked of him in regards to the coming of his kingdom. When is it going to come and how will we know? And so he's given for us uh, a long view, adding details which the disciples hadn't seen or understood from the Old Testament before, speaking about the time between when Christ will die and resurrect and then when he will return for his kingdom, this period of time which we now live in, which you know is the last days, it's this time which will we'll live in a world where it is increasingly tumultuous in so many different ways and, and growing in its danger in this world, um, both to believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, it's a time that is characterized by uh, spiritually by false teachers abounding and by people eagerly following those false teachers and wanting what they have to say because they give to us what we want to hear, not what God has to say. Truly, as Jesus is drawn out and he's given us these signs and he's expressed what the world will be like, we see that there is really nothing that hinders his return at any moment. We are in that period now where Christ could indeed begin his return. But he gave us last week two great signs. So as we're looking through, Jesus hasn't really given us a lot of signs, but more a characteristic of the age. And then he says, before he comes, so before he sets up his kingdom, there are two great signs that will come. And we talked about these in a little bit more detail on Wednesday, and those notes are back there if you want them, as well as last week. One being the abomination of desolation, which is where the, the ruler, the Antichrist at the time, sets himself up to be God and demands worship. The other sign that Jesus gives us here that shows that the kingdom is very near and his return is very near is the fall of Jerusalem. And this we spoke about a little bit more, which leads to this campaign of Armageddon where Christ returns and he takes care of all the enemies of his people and those who have stood against him and comes back to reign for eternity. Now, as we come to our text this morning, we come to a parable. Jesus kind of brings all of this to an end with a short parable and then a couple of, of, of commands or some advice and encouragement. So as we come this morning, our text this morning is going to be verse 29 through verse 33 of Luke 21. And it says this as Jesus gives us this parable. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means 
pass away. Let's ask God's blessing on his word as we continue. Our Heavenly Father, as we look into your word and we take its encouragement and its strength today, we do ask for your blessing. We ask there your encouragement in your word, that it would be living and powerful in our lives this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the parable that Jesus gives here in verse uh, 29 and 30, he says, look at the fig tree. Now, Luke, uh, in Matthew and Mark, when he describes it, they just talk of the fig tree. But Luke adds for us this little phrase, and all the trees. I think he adds that because Luke's main uh, audience he's going for is for the Gentiles. And the fig tree was typically a picture used as an illustration of Israel. So here, Luke, to remind us that this is true for everybody, not just Israel, says, look at the fig tree and all the trees, because we're not just talking or trying to picture here Israel or anything. This is about everything. So he says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. It says, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. Now, as Jesus uh, brings this here, the lesson of the parable is really very easily understandable. It's a simple parable. Uh, This is when you see the trees budding, when you see the flowers and the fruit come on the trees around you, you know it's spring and summer is nearly there. Um, That's something we we all know, we all understand. We we see these kinds of signs and all sorts of things. We have certain things we see and we go, oh, when I see that or smell that or hear that, I know this is about to come. And that's all Jesus is using this parable for is to say, when you see the signs, when you see these things coming, you know the end is near. This is, so these two signs which he's just given us, the fall of Jerusalem and the abomination of desolation, he says, when those two signs come, you know the end is near. It's like the budding of the tree in spring before summer comes. He talks about a generation, and some get confused here or uncertain about what he means here in verse 32. He says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now that he's not talking, the you and this generation is not who he's talking to there. It's in the flow of the context. It flows right on from where he was talking about uh, about seeing the last thing. So if you're alive, when you see the abomination of desolation and you see the abomination or the fall of Jerusalem, those who see that, they're the ones who will see the coming of Christ very near. That's the generation he is speaking of, the generation that is alive to see the signs will be the generation that is still there to see his coming on this earth. So much about Christ's coming and his return can confuse. You know, we've, we've done a little study over the last few weeks, both through Luke 21 and on Wednesday evening, to look at some of the, the details because it, so much of it can be confusing and putting the details together, what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Some of the details and some of the things that we read about trouble us, cause some anxiety even in some. Even as we look at the world, we think, well, we're in the last days and I can see this trouble. And and Jesus says it's only going to keep getting worse. It can bring anxiety even in believers. No, no No one wants to endure persecution. No one longs for that. None of us want to see the false teachers directing people away from Jesus. That's not our our desire or our heart. And even the events that lead up to the return of Christ 
particularly the closer we get, the more intense they get. Some of those events are, are genuinely terrifying and even gruesome in what must take place. There's so much there that can be confusing or cause trouble and angst. So Jesus, having given these words about what the, the character of the times will be like and about the signs that will indicate his return is coming in, and all of them bear trouble with them, before he leaves this topic and before he finishes this teaching, he leaves us with some words of encouragement and some advice about how to endure. Two things we're called to do in these last few verses of Luke 21. One of them, which we will examine this morning, is be confident of his plan. Be confident of his plan. And then as we will continue next week, he reminds us to be watching for his return. Be confident of his plan and be watching for his return. And so this morning, we want to look at the first of those, which is to be confident of his plan. As Jesus reminds us and he says, look, it's coming. And those that see those signs, that's what will happen. He gives us these words in verse 33. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Be convinced of God's plan. Jesus tells us here that the earth and the heavens will pass away. It is coming to an end. It was created in perfection. But why will this heaven and earth pass away? Why will what we see and live in and experience now, why will it pass away? That wasn't what God's intent was when he created it. When God created the universe, his intent wasn't that it would be temporary and that he would have to create a, a new one and, and re, rebuild or remake all. Back when we remind ourselves, and some of this we have looked at in the weeks gone by, but we remind ourselves in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, it speaks of the creation of the world and what it was for in the universe. And he says, he, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Everything that we see, everything that we live in, everything that we experience here in our heavens and earth, God created, and he created it for himself, for his pleasure, for his glory. And for his enjoyment. When we read in the, the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And we, we read about God's account of how he created all of this. And why he created all this. It says at the end of each day of his creation. That he looks at what was created and it is good. That it is what it should be. It was perfect in what he intended it to be. Then we get to the, the end of all creation and God has added everything in that needs to be added and he has finally put in the crowning glory of his creation, which is humanity. 
He puts them into the Garden of Eden, prepared for them in perfection. At the end of that final day, day six, he looks on everything and no longer is everything just good. But now that it's completed, he says, everything is now very good. This is exactly what he intended it to be. The perfect environment. And it was created a perfect place for humanity to love him and to serve him, to worship him and to enjoy him forever. That was his goal. That was his desire there. And we look around and so many people ask and and wonder why the universe is so vast if all that's in it is just this earth and the humanity on this earth and if that's the focus of God, why so vast? Psalm 19 reminds us that the universe is just big enough to display the glory of God. It is big enough to display the glory of God. That is its intent. That is its desire. It is not too small to where it's just about us. But rather, it is the size it needs to be so that every part of it, every expanse of it, every square little centimeter of it is there to declare the glory of God in all things. When God created, everything was as it should be. Created in perfection. But we know now, as we live in this world now, that what we live in is not very good. It is not what God intended. It is not what God had planned in terms of an eternal place. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, Because all have sinned. Sin marred that perfect creation. It's like we read in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned. And what is sin? Come short of the glory of God. What is the great purpose of all creation, including us? It is to give glory to God. Now, everything falls short of that. Everything is short of the glory of God. Creation no longer displays the perfection of God it was intended to. And everything from that point on, everything from the moment that mankind fell into sin, everything from that moment on is about God moving to bring us back to perfection. To bring us back to his full and glorious intent. How does God make sin, uh, this sin-cursed creation, glorify him? How do you take what's fallen into sin and, and, and lowered from the glory of God, glorify him? Redemption. Redemption and grace. In a fallen world, this is what brings God glory. And so, from the moment of the fall of, into sin, God brings grace. And he promises to Adam and Eve that day that a Savior would come. And he promises that that Savior would make everything right. And that is God's intent. Jesus tells us here that the earth will pass away. And why must it pass away? Because it's corrupt. It will be completely renewed. Here he says, heaven and earth will pass away. But what we know from scripture is that when it does pass away, he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. 
You know, it's no surprise to anyone that the universe is dying. It's part of so many conversations in so many different ways. Saving our planet is a huge industry now. Now, we need to properly steward the earth that God has given us. But while it is our duty to properly steward it, we cannot save it. This universe is beyond saving. In fact, Romans 8 tells us in verse 22 that the world, the universe, the creation is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption, waiting for its final salvation. The universe... Contrary to popular opinion around us, will not die of natural causes. And the universe around us will not die of man-made causes. This earth will not die before we do. We don't need to find another place to survive. Rather, God intends to shatter the universe. What we see is not going to fall because of nature or because of our own doing. It will fall because of God's doing. God will bring it to its end. God did promise not to destroy the world by flood. That's why we see the rainbow. We've seen some beautiful rainbows in the past few days. They're a reminder that God promised never to destroy the world again by flood. But this time when God brings everything down and he destroys this earth, it's not going to be by flood but by fire. He will destroy everything by fire. Peter tells us some of the details of what he has in mind in 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse verse 7 says this, But the heavens and the earth, which now are preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Down in verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Every part of creation will be reduced down to its most basic elements, burned down to its most basic things, its its sounds a lot like a cosmic atomic bomb. This earth, which is corrupted by sin with all of its pains and with all of its trials, will go to make way for perfection, for what God intended in the beginning. He is creating a glorious future. This is the work of history. This is what God is doing. From the moment of creation and then the fall into sin, from then all the way until now, this is what God is doing. He He is working, including the work of salvation. It is God bringing everything back to the way he intended it to be, the way it ought to be. You know, if we're going to understand, and this is what we, we talked about some on Wednesday a few weeks ago, if we're going to, 
to understand the last days, if we're going to understand what all of this end time stuff is about, we must understand that it is God bringing everything to a close. It is God bringing everything back to what he intends it to be. Romans 8.21 says, Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. He's going to restore creation for his glory. Bring back what glorifies him. He is about making an end of the suffering and the sin, crushing Satan and evil and fulfilling all of his promises. This is why when we get to the end, when we read in passages like Revelation 21 and 22, we start to see some of the beauty of what God has in mind. Revelation 21 brings us to the end of describing for us the new heavens and the new earth. It says in verse 1 of Revelation 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, Also, there was no more sea. And he describes some of that going through there in in a number of the verses. And then chapter 22 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. As you read through those two chapters, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, I've said this before, as you read through those, it sounds strikingly familiar to what God created in Genesis a beautiful place of perfection. A place where God regularly walks with his people, where they see him face to face and enjoy his communion. Where everything we see and everything we do brings glory to God. Where there is nothing corrupted by sin in any way, but absolute and complete perfection. Where the glory of God shines in everything. This is the glory of what God is doing now. He is taking what was ruined by sin and bringing it through the process so that by the end we can have again a place where God and his people can live in perfection, glorify God and enjoy him forever. To worship him as we were meant to. First thing Jesus reminds us here is to be confident in God's plan. This is what he intends to do. But in that, he follows that up with this to be confident in God's word. He uses that picture that heaven and earth will fall away in contrast to his word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word can be trusted. Can be trusted. It's permanent. God's word is permanent. You know, in in contrast to the earth, which will pass away, 
God's word never will. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus reminds us and says, not even the smallest little piece of his word will change. Not the smallest part. It is forever fixed. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is a guarantee that God's plan won't change. When God promised in the beginning, when we fell into sin, that he was going to recreate and bring about his glory again, and he was going to do that by saving people for his own purpose and bringing them into perfection again, when God said that's what his plan was, that is his plan and that is exactly what he's going to do. It's what he has said he will do. What is his purpose? To create a perfect environment that displays his glory in which we can worship and enjoy him forever. When the things of this world fail us, he won't. When the world seems confusing and feels overwhelming or out of control, God's purpose stands fast. It does not change. What he has said will come to pass. They are permanently relevant too. They are, are never dated. You, know, you, can, you can look back and, and read through or listen to sermons I've said and there are aspects of those which date. You say, well, that doesn't really fit now, does it? But God's word never dates. It never becomes irrelevant. Sure, it often takes time to, to study and to understand, but they never date. I'm not a shepherd. I don't know anything about shepherding from experience. But to this day, there is still not a better way to describe the role of the pastor than a shepherd. God's word never dates. My life looks nothing like Job's. The book of Job is the earliest book of scripture to be written. My life doesn't look anything like that. I don't live in the same environment. I don't have the same uh, things around me. But Job's suffering and the lessons that he learns from God are deeply relatable. It never becomes irrelevant. They are as true and relevant to me as they are in Africa or Asia or Polynesia. God's word will not fail at any time for anyone. God's word is permanent. God's word is pure. Now, why are the heavens and earth going to pass away? The heavens and earth are going to pass away and be recreated because they are corrupted. They are filled with sin. But God's word endures. God's word will not pass away because it is pure it is perfect. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says, Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. To be pure is to be tested, to be tried, to be uh, pure in its essence, to be without error. His word is an expression of his character. It's trustworthy in every way. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. 
like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That is, they've been tested. They've been proven to be pure. They've been proven to be true. They've been proven to be trustworthy. We know what is to come. And we can be certain of what is to become to come because he has proven himself to be true. God has never lost control. God has never changed his plan or his purpose. God cannot lie. God's word is permanent. God's word is pure. God's word is powerful. To endure perfectly forever, it must be powerful. God's word isn't empty sayings or trite pick-me-ups, but powerful, transforming truth. God's word is what created everything. God's word is what sustains everything today. At his return, we see in Revelation chapter 11, amongst Old Testament passages, that it is his word which will vanquish all of his enemies. He will not draw a sword. He will not fight with a weapon. It is his word. First Peter, amongst so many others, tell us that it is God's word which saves us. Jesus himself says in John chapter 17 that it is his word which is truth, which sanctifies us, that is which changes us, which sets us apart for his glory. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he describes his word like, like milk and like meat, which helps us to grow. Psalm 19. Let me read the last few verses of Psalm 19 for you, because it uh, captures so much of what God's word is in just a few simple phrases. Psalm 19, and I'll begin in verse 7. The word of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. As you see the times pass, never doubt that God will do what he promised he will do. One thing we know is because God's word can be trusted, we know also that God's word gives peace. In Philippians chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 4, some verses which perhaps are fairly well known. Philippians 4 And verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard 
and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Go to God in prayer. There will be struggles along the way. As we live in these end times, as we live in these last days, it is certain from the way Jesus has described this that there will be struggles along the way. The progress of God's plan is not a smooth path. It means living in a world which is increasingly denying God, which is increasingly defying God. It means having your heart broken by ones that you love. It means leading your family through times of trouble, pandemic, famine, persecution. But remember what Jesus said to us along the way through Luke 21. Don't be troubled of heart. Not one hair of your head will be lost. He will take care of you. Don't fear, we are reminded in Philippians. Turn to God. Peter says it this way, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. And then as we see in verse 8 and 9 of Philippians 4, put your mind in God's word. What do we think on? We think on the things that are pure and just and lovely, of good report. What is that? That is the things of God's word. And when we do, God will give peace. Twice in these verses, he reminds us that God is the giver of peace. He will free you from the anxiety. He will loose you from the fear of the unknown. How will he do that? Because God's word is permanent. It is pure. And it is powerful. God will reassure you as you delve into his word, as you read it, as you listen to it. He has a plan. He has stuck to his plan. And he will finish his plan. That plan leads us to his glory and to our eternal joy. There is no doubt that this world will fail you and fall apart all around you. People will let you down and they will hurt you. But God's word will never fail you. No matter what your circumstances, no matter what your outlook on this life, The wonder of it all is that it is the word of God that will bring this world to its end and renew it to its absolute perfection. God's word will not let you down. So don't put down God's word. His word has been tested. His word has been proven in every generation. Maybe you're feeling overwhelmed, discouraged, or troubled in this world. And maybe you've let go of God's word for a while. Will you make a commitment with me? Make a commitment to make God's word part of your life again? Suggestion here is read God's word every day for three weeks. 21 days. I pick that because that's What they say is the minimum time you need to establish a habit. 21 days. Doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be in depth. But read God's word every day 
seeking God genuinely and seeking him in prayer and put him to the test. Put him to the test. See if he does not do what he promises. See if he does not give you a passion for his word or an outlook on this life which you did not have before. Put him to the test. See if his word does not live. This world will continue on its way to destruction. But God has promised a glorious end. He will do what he promised. God's word will not pass away. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, dear God, for the truth you have shown this morning that you have reminded us of. It's easy to lose track of. It's easy to let go of. Help us, dear God, to remember that though everything else perishes, everything else will fall away, fade away, and come under corruption, your word never will. It is true. It has always been true and will always be true. Let us grasp onto it with both hands, with full hearts, with ready minds, put you to the test and see that you do indeed keep your word. Thank you and praise you for these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.